This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The curve may be flattening, but it took devastating the U.S. economy to do it. More than 6 million people filed new claims for unemployment benefits last week as the country shut down to save itself from coronavirus. That means in the last three weeks, more than 15 million Americans have been laid off. Rebecca Jarvis is ABC's chief business and economics correspondent. 15 million, Rebecca, is probably an undercount. Right. Well, we are looking at more than 15 million Americans who have been laid off in just three weeks. And we know that that is underestimating the number of real layoffs. And the reason is people have been trying to apply for unemployment insurance, but the state systems, which are meant to deal with this, don't have the capacity for it. We've heard about the websites crashing. They don't have the personnel to answer people's phone calls. I've heard from people who managed to get through websites at one or three o'clock in the morning, and that was their only way after hundreds of tries. So we know that these numbers underrepresent the number of people who have lost their jobs in recent weeks because of the lockdowns. And what we're seeing is there's been a bit of a shift where it started with the hospitality and leisure industries, people who worked at restaurants and bars, the airlines. Naturally, those industries were having to let some people go because of the fact that everything was on lockdown. But now we're seeing the effects on retail. We're seeing the effects on doctor's offices, areas that you might not imagine immediately think would have an impact from the lockdowns, they've been holding out as long as they can. But this is hitting all aspects of the U.S. economy at this point. For those businesses, and you mentioned retail, that were teetering even before this, is there any reason for JCPenney to open up again? Well, this is the really difficult question because there's segments of the economy, and retail is a big one, that we're already feeling pressure coming into this crisis. And so for the retailers, like the JCPenney's of the world, who have had to furlough employees and decided to make those decisions, when you look at most estimates, they're not going to bring back all of their employees, even if they do reopen, and many of them will. They're not bringing back all of those employees. And and frankly, for a lot of businesses that have learned over the last handful of weeks how to do business more with less, it's something that we've seen coming out of the 2008 recession. It's something that we saw coming out of the recession in the early 2000s. When a company figures out how to do more with less, they continue to do more with less. And, and add to that, Aaron, the fact that a lot of these companies, when business reopens, they will see a return of consumers to some degree, but how many people are going to immediately go out and start spending money when there's been this great shock to the economy and there's so much uncertainty around the employment picture? How many people are going to really feel that level of confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to go out and spend my dollars again? There's not a lot of good news here, Rebecca. One thing I will say, what what you also are seeing, though, in the business community is remarkable resilience. And you're seeing businesses doing things they've never done before. They're getting into areas they've never been in before. The skincare companies that are now creating hand sanitizer because the demand is there for hand sanitizer, but not necessarily for perfume right now. The clothing companies that are getting into the mask business. 
it it is an incredible and remarkable thing to see what these companies are doing, what American citizens are going out and doing for their fellow, their neighbors and their communities. So as much as we're seeing the worst of what's possible, we're also seeing the best of what's possible. And that does give me hope that people will continue to do everything they can to support each other and especially to support their neighborhood small businesses. Okay, Rebecca, let's hope ABC's Rebecca Jarvis with unemployment skyrocketing unprecedented numbers of Americans do need help feeding their families. Coming up more about a new ABC News partnership with Feeding America. First, though, our understanding of coronavirus is changing. We knew it started in China, but there's now new research that shows most, if not all, cases in New York, the nation's hardest-hit state, originated in Europe. The research was conducted at the Icon School of Medicine, part of the Mount Sinai Health System, and we have the scientists with us, Viviana Simon and Harm van Bekel. You trace infectious diseases all the time. What did you find with COVID-19? The genomes that we see here from the cases in New York are very similar to uh, genomes that have been sequenced from cases in in Europe. Uh, And what that tells us is that uh, the virus has arrived to New York through, uh, through Europe, essentially. So does this mean there's a separate strain of the virus that infected New York and a separate strain that infected, say, California? No, the strains are all really similar. We can just look at small changes in the genome to pinpoint um, what is the closest relative. It's like a family tree, and you can see who's related to whom by looking at those small changes in the virus. So there are um, different branches in the tree of the coronavirus um, family, and we can, by comparing how closely related they are, we can basically deduce um, from where they have been before. The, the strains in New York City intermingle very closely with viruses seen in Europe. So um, the, the interpretation of those findings is that um, there has been an exchange of, of um, travelers um, either coming from Europe or New Yorkers going to Europe and um, that brought back the virus. When did your research show that this first started showing up in New York? So the first sequence that we actually um, analyzed was um, obtained from a person with COVID-19 end of February. But when um, testing became widely available, there was a large increase of um, COVID positive patients that were diagnosed. And we used those sequences to to look at the relatedness of the viruses. And it appears that there is a significant amount of untracked transmissions in the community. And the most likely explanation for the number of untracked transmissions in the community is that the virus has been circulating in New York City for a couple of weeks undetected. So our analysis suggests that the virus has been in the city as early as um, late January. So far earlier than March 1st, which is when I think there was the first positive case. Exactly. So it really was seeded here before anyone was really thinking about the kinds of strict measures that are now in place. That's what our data suggests, yeah. I'm interested in how much more you expect to learn about the origin of this virus. So we, we, this is early data, and we still lack um, sequencing information from um, different parts of the United States, from different parts of the world, more um, sequencing out of Europe, 
will allow us to pinpoint more carefully um, the spread of the virus um, here in the United States. We are, we are also continuing to sequence here in New York. Uh, we've already generated uh, many additional genome sequences, and that should also help us to get a more um, clear picture of the spread here in the, in the city and sort of the extent of introductions into the city as well. And is any of that contradicting the initial finding? No, we continue to see the same pattern that the majority of um, cases here are linked to a European origin. Let me pull in ABC News contributor John Cohen, formerly of the Department of Homeland Security, because, John, the European origin of the New York outbreak seems to underscore why the China travel ban really wasn't effective. Well, this study confirms concerns that have been raised by Homeland Security uh, and border security experts uh, over the last several months that the initial travel restrictions focusing uh, exclusively on uh, individuals who were coming to the United States from China uh, were insufficient. Uh, we knew by the time that these restrictions were put into place that people who had visited China uh, who potentially were exposed and carriers of the virus had left China and had traveled to Europe, uh, other parts of Asia, uh, and other countries across the globe. So simply restricting travel for uh, a, a subset of those people coming from China to the United States uh, was insufficient to stop the virus from entering the United States. What should have happened? What we should have done uh, in late January, uh, once, we, uh, once concerns were elevated about this virus potentially coming to the United States, is we should have begun screening all inbound travelers coming to the United States from any last point of departure airport. ABC News contributor John Cohen, along with Harm Von Bako and Viviana Simon from the Mount Sinai Health System. And coming up, our partnership with Feeding America. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, let's talk about pregnancy. Maternity wards across this country are now obviously taking extra precautions. But what do we know about the risk factors right now for pregnant women? So what we know is that pregnancy definitely represents a situation where the immune system is compromised. And we know from other viral respiratory illnesses that pregnant women can be at increased risk. There is very limited data thus far on the effects of COVID-19 on pregnant women. Um, so that's something that we're following really closely. What are we still learning about that impact? Well, out of the very, very small case reports that have been published thus far, Amy, it doesn't look like being infected with COVID-19 increases the risk for a pregnant woman to get sick. We also don't know, but don't think this happens, that the virus can be spread via blood um, or breast milk. But again, so much that we still need to really study. You know, a lot of the focus, understandably, has been on women in their third trimester and who are about to deliver. That's understandable. But we have to look at the beginning of pregnancy. And so we don't yet know if women who are exposed to COVID-19 or this new coronavirus are at increased risk for miscarriage 
or preterm labor. So we really need to take it trimester by trimester. There's some suspicion that they might be. But again, we, we really need to study this in much, much greater numbers. All right, Dr. Jen, we know you will be sticking around. Well, since the onset of the outbreak, New Mexico has been one of the states that took advanced measures to flatten the curve and slow the spread. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has been at the forefront of that battle, and she's here to talk more about the impact COVID-19 has had on her state. Welcome, Governor. We appreciate your time. And we know just this past Monday, you extended the emergency stay-at-home order to April 30th. It had been at April 10th. Do you believe that will be enough time? Uh, it's really hard to say. I know that it's too soon to change what we're doing in terms of our instructions to stay home. And we also limited further what we identified as exceptions to businesses that needed to be closed in order to make sure that folks are staying home. Uh, I think the whole country is looking at when can we safely begin to think about moving into going back to work and uh, engaging with our families again. And I, it's, too, it's too soon to tell, but April 30th is where we are today, and we're prepared to make additional tough decisions if we need to. I know that you spoke with President Trump about being very concerned for the Navajo Nation during the coronavirus pandemic. Access to food is one of your greatest concerns. How are you addressing this? Well, it's both food and water and just sort of essential services and supplies. In New Mexico, uh, we've got uh, 23 different sovereign nations, Native American tribes. At the Navajo Nation area in their chapters, which is their local bodies of government, you can have uh, individuals that are 40 miles from any kind of a grocery store, gas station. And so we are using the National Guard to set up food delivery stations. We're working on any number of sort of triage centers so that we're limiting needing to come in to get supplies, but we're also not allowing anyone to be in a situation where they don't have what they need to meet a stay-at-home instruction. And it's really tough. This is an underserved population in every state. It's true in New Mexico, all of our sovereign nations, uh, the federal trust responsibility has never been met. They don't have adequate health care and other supports. And so this is just an at-risk population. And we're beginning to see real risks uh, to all of our sovereign nations. So we're doing extra community containment measures and extra supports. And we're working very closely with Indian Health Service to increase testing for every single one of our Pueblos and tribes. Yeah. And speaking of all of those big needs you have in your state, do you believe the federal government has been responding with enough so far? Uh, enough. I can. There's not a governor, I think, in the country that's going to say it's enough. I will tell you that the federal government has been much more responsive about trying to figure out what we're going to do to adequately serve and protect tribal communities in this state and other states. We're looking at a regional potential operation for Utah in Arizona. The Navajo Nation uh, is in all three of those states. They have increased our opportunity by declaring a national uh, federal emergency for the state so that we can call up more of the guard. They're making sure that we don't have an interruption in our food supply. They're giving us field hospitals. Uh, I think we're getting the right attention. Is any state in a position to have security for food and PPE and related supplies. No, we are not there yet. And I am aggressively working on additional testing, even though we're one of the states that's done fairly well because we got into the game of testing early. 
But until you can do complete surveillance and testing in your state, you are not prepared to serve your state adequately. And this continues to be a source of significant frustration for me. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, we know you are fighting fiercely for the people who you preside over. So thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you the very best. Thank you very much. With unemployment skyrocketing amid the pandemic, an unprecedented number of Americans need help feeding their families. And while organizations like Feeding America are stepping up to help the cause, they cannot do it without support. So here to share how Bimbo Bakeries USA is rising to the occasion is their vice president of corporate affairs, Dana Connors. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. And I know your company oversees so many food brands we all know and love, Sarah Lee Breads, Thomas's Breakfast, and so many others. And because you produce food, your employees have been considered essential workers during this time. So tell me how you all have been handling this pandemic. Sure. Hi, Amy. Um, it's been a crazy time as far as it is for everybody, but we have been operating at Beanbow Bakers USA with one mission through this entire pandemic, which is to feed America while keeping our associates safe. And it's been incredible to see. We have 20,000 associates, many of whom are out every day in the bakeries, baking your favorite breads and your, and your sweet baked goods, um, and then delivering them to the stores. So it's been really inspiring and humbling to see these people out every day, just making sure that we're able to get food on the table for, for everyone in this difficult time. Yeah, it's remarkable. And I know you've had a longstanding partnership with Feeding America. Tell us about that relationship. Sure. You know, with the work that we do, our products are necessities. They're, they're staples for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And our goal has always been for all Americans to enjoy them, regardless of economics. So, you know, it was only natural for us to partner with Feeding America based on how they are able to help communities all across the country. We have communities, uh, operations in all 50 states, and they have agencies in all of the communities where we operate. So over the years, we've been able to donate, on average, uh, 20 million pounds of food. That's the equivalent of 20 million loaves of bread each year to Feeding America food banks. Wow. Big numbers. And as a part of our Day of Hope, we understand you actually have a big announcement to make. So take it away. Yes. Yeah, so we heard firsthand from Feeding America the need that they were facing, both to feed those in need and to uh, the challenges that they had with supply. So we are doing two big things for them. The first is for product donations. So we are going to make sure that during this time, all of our bread, bagels, English muffins, sweet baked goods, uh, bun donations go directly to Feeding America food banks. And we expect this to significantly increase our annual donation by millions of pounds. And we also know that there is an immediate need uh, for financial support during this time. So Bima Bakers USA is uh, proud to donate $500,000 to the Feeding America COVID-19 Relief Fund. This will help with uh, the putting together emergency boxes of non-perishable goods immediately. We've also asked our associates, our vendor partners, our suppliers, our families to donate directly to Feeding America, too. And in just you know, a few short days, we've been able to raise uh, thousands, and we believe we're well on our way to to donating at least, if not more than a million dollars for Feeding America during this time. Wow. Dana Connors, that wasn't just a big announcement. That was an <laughs> enormous announcement and so much gratitude for all that you've done and continue to do with Beanbow Bakeries USA. So thank you so much.
Coming up next right here on What You Need to Know, Dr. Jen Ashton joins us with the answers to your medical questions, plus one man's mission to feed America, leading the charge to help restaurant workers out of a job. Top chef's Tom Colicchio is here. This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton. She has the latest batch on your questions from the coronavirus crisis. So, Dr. Jen, thanks for being with us again. And we're going to go to our first question, which is this. A resident at a hospital tested positive for COVID-19 while waiting for the result. They went back on a patient floor. All the patients that were in contact with this resident were tested and came back negative. Is it possible for these patients to become infected at a later date? It is, Amy. And the tricky thing here is that just because someone has been exposed to a confirmed positive case is not an indication for testing right now because we don't know the value of routine testing in people who are asymptomatic or don't have any signs or symptoms of infection. We need to get that information desperately and down the road when we have broad, widespread testing of the general population, somehow, some way, we'll be able to find out the value of that. But right now, just because you've been exposed, it's not an indication for testing. All right. And then we now know that the CDC is recommending that you wear masks if you go out. So this question, very pertinent. Do we need to be even more careful to not touch our faces when we are wearing masks since we might be applying virus particles directly onto the mask? Absolutely. And so you and I have talked about this before. Part of the reason why masks, especially the medical version, is not recommended for the general public is because people are not used to having something on their face. When I do surgery in OBGYN, I'm trained once I have a mask on, once I have gloves on, I don't touch anything that's not sterile, meaning the patient and the surgical field. But the lay public is not used to that. So what we don't want is even with a bandana for people to be touching their face more and introducing more viral particles to what really is the danger zone, eyes, nose and mouth. Right. And there is a tendency to adjust because we're not used to it or it's, you know, it it, it causes an itch or something. So it's something to really be aware of. Yep. All right. Next question. Do we know if asymptomatic carriers share any of the same traits, characteristics? For example, do they tend to be from a certain age group? We don't know that. And I know that's frustrating for people to hear. But remember, the virus is less than four months old. So we need to study people who we know are positive or infected. And we also need to study people who have no symptoms but are infected. And then we need to compare those two groups. And in medicine and science, we make the first step of the scientific process with basic observation. And we're not even there yet. We do know, however, that 25 percent of people who are known to be positive with COVID-19 show no symptoms whatsoever. Right. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you so much. We appreciate it. One thing we tend to take for granted is the service industry. Restaurants are obviously suffering, and a huge topic right now is food insecurity. Joining us now to talk more about this is Chef Tom Colicchio, founding member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition and judge on Top Chef. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. And I know as a food advocate, you have worked for years to help end hunger in the United States. You're a big supporter for asking the government to step up. Tell us about your efforts. Um, well, the efforts uh, for the Indep- uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition, uh, you know, we, we started about uh, 
three or four weeks ago when we realized the, the enormity of the problem that we were facing, um, and we knew that there was a, a stimulus package that was going to help small businesses, and uh, we uh, we realized that we needed a, a place to table, and so we we organized. Um, we found groups in Chicago that was working on, on the same issue. We found groups uh, all throughout the South, and we brought all these coalitions together. And um, very very uh, very quickly, we. Um, we uh, we hired a, a lobbying team, a comms team, and uh, we are having direct conversations uh, with members of Congress uh, to let them know uh, the issues that we have uh, in the restaurant industry, and also right now to let them know that the, the fixes for for care uh, for the Care Act um, they don't really work for the restaurant industry right now. Last month, you had to shut your restaurants down. You had to fire 300 yep. employees. Restaurants across the country are suffering just the same as you. Do you have any inspirational words to, to owners and to workers out there during these times? Um, I had a layoff, layoff. I didn't fire. I actually laid off more, over 400 people. And, uh, the, you know, we, we encourage them to get an unemployment, especially in New York right now. Unemployment pays slightly over $1,000 a week. If you're not going out, not spending money on on various you know things that you you're, you're, you don't need right now uh, that'll get you by so that's 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 what we're telling people that's what's encouraging in terms of restaurants um, we're encouraging people to uh, reach out and try to get this this PPP even if it doesn't work for you right now it may change so definitely sign up um, there's also a bunch of other things out there as well that that you can you can uh, apply for um, you know this is going to be tough this is not going to be easy I still suspect that at least 50 percent of the restaurants will not get open Wow. Um, and then the problem with that is you're going to have a lot of vacancies on ground floor uh, spaces. Um, you're going to have, uh, you know, our, our restaurants have become such a part of our culture, um, even the small local restaurants that we have. Um, and if they're not there when we come out of this, where are we going to go and celebrate? Where are we going to go to blow off steam? Where are we going to go to get together, uh, you know, with each other? And so I'm, I'm really, really concerned. And then, you know, the other thing I'm hearing is when do you think you'll open up? And I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, when does the public feel confident and feel secure enough to start gathering again in with groups of people? So it, it doesn't really matter when we when we can open up. Um, so, you know, it's tough right now. A lot of restaurants are trying to fill the gap by doing takeout or delivery. And that's really not moving the needle. But I still think that um, in terms of feeding people, um, restaurants can play a huge role. And making sure that seniors are getting food and children who are uh, you know, who are living in households that are food insecure, adults living in food in homes that are food insecure, restaurants if they had proper funding through the government and there's a bill uh, in Velasquez's office he's a heads of small business for for the house where restaurants if they work with nonprofits can get about a half million dollars of, of money flowing through the restaurant so we can actually turn our restaurants into community centers very very similar to what Jose Andres is doing with World Central Kitchen and so. There's a role that we can all play, um, and uh, it's just getting a lot of cooperation, and we need smart government right now. Um, you know, for years we've heard about shrinking government and, and big government's bad, but what we, what we need right now is we need smart government that is really responsive. They should listen to small business owners. They should listen to the people who are on the front lines of feeding people uh, and people who are, are taking care of people because they're the ones who know how to get this done. And so, uh, you know, the hope out there is maybe there's a silver lining where, we come out of this and we have a very different society. We certainly hope so. Tom Colicchio, thank you for all that you're doing. And we certainly are sending our love and our support to you, other restaurant owners and workers out there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you.
And there is much more ahead right here on our Day of Hope. The surprise message from one woman who knows how to put up a fight. Plus, one company making sure your meal gets to your door. Now expanding their reach to so many Americans in need. And Harry Connick's helping hand. We're back in a moment. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back to our Day of Hope show. Joining us now is Layla Ali, a longtime supporter of Feeding America. She sits on their entertainment council and mobilizes the public in support of their mission to end hunger in America. Layla, talk a little bit about why it is so important for you to be a part of Feeding America, especially right now. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I've been supporting Feeding America for so many years because they are our nation's largest hunger relief organization. They support about 200 food banks and 60,000 food pantries and meal programs. And now with, you know, what we're facing now, you got kids home from school, people being laid off from their jobs. So I think it's more than 17 million more people that are in danger of, you know, being hungry. So Feeding America has, uh, you know, some heavy weight on their shoulders right now. And that's why I've joined them to continually try to raise funds. I know you are a phenomenal philanthropist during this time of crisis. So talk about what you've been doing personally to help others and to encourage positivity. Well, you know, now's the time that, you know, we're all being tried, you know, and we're really about to find out what we're made of, um, you know, because this is this is the real deal. This is a real fight. Right. For all of us. And for me, it's really about reaching out to, of course, my family, my friends. Um, you know, of course, we know you got to reach out to the seniors because some of them can't just get to the store or get items that they need. So I have neighbors and friends that I've bought groceries for, mm. friends that I've written checks for, you know. Um, so I'm lucky to be in a situation to be able to help people in that way. Um, and just sometimes just getting calling people. I mean, I think about people who live alone. You know, and are just in the house. I mean, I have my two children and my husband, which is amazing, but not everybody has that. You know, so you really have to call, check on, you know, your circle and everyone has to just do what they can right now. And I also um, decided to give 100 percent of proceeds from my organic Layla Ali spice blends to Feeding America because I just thought that was a great opportunity for me to help people live healthier, you know, in terms of, you know, my spices, but also to raise even more funds for Feeding America. That is awesome, Layla. And you're right. Everybody can do something. And I know your father, Muhammad Ali, was obviously a great humanitarian. You are certainly walking in his footsteps, and we are very grateful that you're doing just that. Layla Ali, thank you for your time, and thank you for all that you do. I just want to say people can go to feedingamerica.org for more information or to donate. That's right. Great. And our Day of Hope rolls on with a company that has partnered with the nonprofit organization, as we were just talking about, Feeding America in a very big way. Here to tell us more about it is the CEO and co-founder of DoorDash, Tony Shu. Thank you for joining us, Tony. And tell us about your company's relationship with Feeding America. It's an important one. It's good to be with you, Amy. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We started DoorDash really to empower local economies, and we've always been committed in finding creative ways to take our technology and do good in the community. So in early 2018, we launched Project Dash, which takes our on-demand logistics platform to power deliveries from 
those who can give, such as restaurants that may have excess food on a daily basis, to organizations that really need that food. Our inaugural partner was Feeding America, and since January of 2018, we've been able to donate together six million meals. That's incredible. And of course, that that DoorDash, that delivery is more important than ever right now during these COVID-19 times. You have a special fundraising campaign you've been working on recently. Tell us about it. You know, during these times, I, I, I think everyone can play a very small part and, and together we can do very big things. So as part of our Do Your Part Challenge, we launched a Instagram live um, video stream in which we partnered with celebrities like Kylie Jenner or Stasi, in which um, you know they would host a live stream. And for every viewer that watched that live stream, DoorDash would donate a meal to a family in need. That's fantastic. And as part of just the as just you know a part of the very first live stream last week, we we're able to donate 2.3 million meals. Wow! And I understand you have another. You have a big announcement that you want to make right here today. Go ahead and do it. Today we're very excited. On top of our, the 2.3 million meals that we donated, we want to announce another 500,000 meal donation in which we're partnering with Feeding America and, you know, take everything that we've done and extend it into the future. And so we actually will be extending our Do Your Part Challenge for weeks to come. So on top of the 500,000 meals that we're announcing today, we're super excited to be doing the Do Your Part Challenge for weeks to come. And hopefully together we can donate many millions oh, of meals. This is fantastic. Tony Shu. thank you so much. Uh, you are helping so many people in need and you're continuing that, uh, I know, for the weeks and months to come. So we really appreciate it during this time and, and always. Thank you. Thank you. And if you're in a position to give, you heard Layla Ali say this as well, but I'll say it again. Go to feedingamerica.org. Feed the love. Coming up right here when we come back, music to our ears. Harry Connick Jr. This ABC News special continues after this. For so many of us, it is music that soothes and comforts us in times of uncertainty. And now some of our favorite artists are providing that much-needed relief. And today, we turn to multi-Grammy and Emmy award-winning musician Harry Connick Jr. I wanted to share with our audience a clip of you at the Ellis Marcellus Center doing what you truly love. What you guys can do to stop that sort of violence that's going on out there and those things that make you scared and depressed is exactly what you're doing right now. You're coming to make yourselves better. You're educating yourselves. You are taking the responsibility on your shoulders to lift our community. You were there with the next generation of musicians. You just lost your good friend and mentor, Ellis Marsalis Jr., to COVID-19. Tell us what he would want those students to understand about the importance of music, especially in times like these. As loving as he was, he was tough on us, and he made us learn the importance of craft and ownership and discovery and all of those things. And Ellis would want all of us to continue to keep the standard very high for these young folks. And if we do that and we keep letting them know what's possible, if you believe in yourself and work hard at your craft, then I think he would be very proud. Yeah. And we're going to turn it over to you officially, Harry Connick Jr. with Yes, We Can Can. Now's the time for all good men to get together with one another. I've been 
problems I'm not that quarrel to try to live this brother I don't find a peace with men without stepping on one another To respect the women of the world Just remember we all have mothers This land, a better land for putting a big smile on all of our faces. Be well. Thanks, Amy. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.